welcome. My name is Dr. Nadia Imran and I am an ST6 trainee in general adult psychiatry. Today we are joined by Dr. Catherine Kennett, who is a consultant, child and adolescent psychiatrist based in North London, who has been an active member of the Royal College of Psychiatry's Planetary Health and Sustainability Committee since its start in 2016. She is also the Royal College of Psychiatrists Lead of Social Prescribing and the lead author of the Royal College of Psychiatry's Position Statement of Social Prescribing. Her work on sustainability includes speaking at national and international conferences, teaching and writing, and contribution to policy making. Welcome, Catherine. Thank That's you. Well. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today. That's quite a, an extensive biography there. So this podcast is part of the Royal College Sustainability Series. And as I said, we're going to talk about um, social prescribing. So what is social prescribing? So social prescribing is a slightly confusing name, actually, for something that we're probably all doing a certain element of anyway in our practice. But social prescribing in its purest form is when a prescription is given for something social, a group based activity. So that can be a number of things. It could be something craft and artistic based. It could be something active like a sport. It could be something like being in nature. The key thing about it is it's a social activity that's in the community. So, for example, a social prescription could be for what we call green walking, walking in green spaces, maybe in an urban area, a, a planned walk, maybe once a week or a few times a week with a group, with a leader who takes people out for a walk. Um, another social prescription might be a pottery class that's done, for example, once a week. Or um, it could be something much more structured, like learning how to grow vegetables or work in a sort of agricultural or horticultural setting. So social prescriptions are pretty much anything, actually, and they're usually grown up from the local community. So, for example, what's available where I live and work in North London will be very different to what's available, for example, in uh, rural Wales, for example. Um, these groups often exist in the community anyway. But what makes social prescribing different is we're thinking about how it can be made a benefit with people's health. So, for example, what might happen in a typical social prescribing pathway would be an individual with a physical or a mental illness, for example, or somebody who is interested in improving their well-being might meet with their GP, their psychiatrist, um, their um, community nurse, for example, if they're under a community adult mental health team. And be, it might be suggested that social prescribing might be of benefit to them. They then would usually be signposted to what we call a link worker. So that is somebody who's embedded in the local community. They often come to come spend a day in each GP practice, for example, or in some adult mental health teams or in some CAMS practices. And it would be a one off consultation usually with the individual and their link worker. And the link worker would say, what matters to you? What do you enjoy? Are you an animal person? Do you like being outdoors? Are you interested in crafts or activities? They'd have a conversation. And the, that link worker, because they're embedded in the local community, will know the local groups, the local activities, and they'll be able to discuss the options and say, this is something that's happening. This is something else. What do you what are you interested in? And then they will be signposted towards that group and then they'll be able to attend. So that's the kind of the, the purest form of social prescribing. It can take different forms. We can also have um, there are different models. So, for example, in some um 
community mental health teams. There won't be a link worker necessarily, but there'll be a member of the adult mental health team or indeed a care coordinator who might be really clued up on the local um, community groups and might do that signposting without that formal link worker step. Equally, if you have an inpatient cohort, then actually you might have um, social prescriptions that are run by, for example, ward OTs, where actually, or, or groups that are happening that the ward are aware of. So, for example, there are some projects, I mentioned walking earlier, but there are some projects where, where it's safe to do so, where it's appropriate and where individuals want to. Staff and patients can go out for a walk several times a week in green spaces from an inpatient setting and, and share that time in nature together. So that might be another very different but equally valid form of social prescribing. It's really important to add social prescribing is not instead of traditional mental health care it's in addition it's an add-on so this is part of really forms part of our traditional biopsychosocial model that we've all been you know learning about and knowing about since the early days of medical school but actually it's a really key part of that social element of the biopsychosocial and clearly based on where you are in your recovery journey where you are in your in your mental Ill health or well-being will have a huge impact on what you'll be able to engage in and what you'll be interested in engaging so for example if you are a forensic high secure inpatient you're going to have very different options to if you have a um, mild to moderate anxiety being managed by your gp equally this this um, podcast is with the rc psych uh, so we are focusing on mental health but equally uh, social prescribing can be really beneficial for physical health and there's no reason why they can't overlap. So, for example, if we have somebody who is struggling with weight gain, high blood pressure, metabolic syndrome, with or without the mental health elements, then actually a food growing group, a cooking group, a being in nature and walking around or an activity group could be really, really helpful to their, to their physical health, but also to their mental health. So there's no divide as such. But we're really keen at the college to make sure that we don't ignore the benefits for mental health with social prescribing. Because I think traditionally it's been the remit of the physical health care and the GP. And we really want to make sure that the community and inpatient mental health care is brought on board with social prescribing. And as I say, it's an add on. So clearly, if you, if, for example, with the mod, mild to moderate anxiety being treated by the GP, it might be that social prescribing is all they want. To, an individual might want to try with or without therapy, with or without medication when it's implied. But if someone's an inpatient, it's quite unlikely that social prescribing is going to be the only thing that's going to get them better and the only thing that's appropriate. So it'll be an add-on to what else is offered, be that pharmacology or um, talking therapies, OT intervention, etc. That's fascinating. You've mentioned some cases of social prescribing and the different different patient groups they can work on. Do you have any resources where you could signpost listeners to such cases yeah absolutely so um we produced at the college a document our position statement on social prescribing very easy to find if you just google rc psych social prescribing position statement it comes up you get a link to an article saying how important and wonderful social prescribing is with the position statement at the bottom in that document it outlines um, what social prescribing is in, in lots of detail, who can benefit for it, but it also gives some quite clear case studies. Um, I can actually, I mean, the, the ones I think are the most powerful are the ones that have the voice of the individuals who've, who've found them beneficial. Um, there was one I can, I can read out to you, actually, I think it's quite quite nice to hear from those who've benefited from it rather than just from me kind of going on saying how brilliant it is in theory. Um, there was a project called the Warneford Meadow Project, which was in a, a 
hospital, a psychiatric hospital in Oxford, Oxfordshire rather. And um, it looked at tending trees and plants and other kind of ecotherapy, as we call it, activities, so activities in nature. Um, and both patients from the hospital, but also the community could, could attend. Um, and there's some really lovely, I mean, have a look in the position statement if you want to hear more and get more information about it. But um, just to read out one of one of the participants um, accounts, they said the Meadow Project um, experience was very therapeutic. It was great being outdoors. The time I was there, I felt very calm and peaceful to be involved in nature. Um, and the lead HCA on the ward who was running the project was a great inspiration and he really cared about the project. It had a very positive impact on my well-being and I felt I had something purposeful to do. So that, I think, is really key to social prescribing, this idea that actually so much of what we do in mental health is, um, I don't want to use the word coercive because I don't think that is the right word, but we're kind of encouraging people to do things often that they don't fully 100% maybe see the benefits of or want to engage with. And we have to sometimes, with the use of the Mental Health Act, but also kind of just encouragement, ask people to engage in things they might be a bit unsure about or they're sort of trusting us. The, one of the great things about social prescribing is you're really working on that empowerment, that side of things where we're saying to somebody, what do you want to do? Do you want to do this? You can't really gain from a social prescription if you're really not interested in doing it. No one's going to be dragging somebody to a meadow project or to a green walking space or to a pottery class. Yes, someone might need some support. They might need their care coordinator or a family member to go with them. But actually, if you're interested, if you're empowered to go and think this is something I'm doing for my mental health, then you're much more likely to get the benefits from it. And you're also much more likely to enjoy it if you don't feel like you're being forced into something. So there's that empowerment um, is such a key part. And actually, we've talked, you mentioned in your introduction about sustainability and how this is part of the series on sustainability. And social prescribing is a really key part of a green solution, a sustainable mental, uh, sorry, a sustainable healthcare system, including a sustainable mental healthcare system. And that empowerment is one of our four key principles on sustainability. Sometimes we get make it five because we say empowerment of staff and of patients. But empowerment is such a key part. I mean, I could I could talk for hours on why and how. But um, essentially, if you're empowering individuals to be an active part of their recovery, it's such an important and key part of, of recovery and, and looking after people when they're unwell and people being able to take that step themselves. So it's such that I think that's part of why social prescribing is so powerful in mental health care. Really nice to hear that from the patient perspective. With all this in mind, what is the evidence or the rationale behind social prescribing? It's a really good question. There is quite a lot of evidence for general well-being improving with social prescribing. One of the problems we have is that because of how it started, it's a kind of grassroots thing. In different communities, we have different groups. And as I mentioned earlier, pretty much every community will have different groups, although there'll be some overlap, which means that actually large randomised testing, uh, uh, controlled testing hasn't been done. We don't have large, high quality evidence for social prescribing. What we do have is small scale evidence and we have a lot of it to show that there's a, a benefit to individuals. And we also know that the harm is incredibly low. So it's sort of worth giving it a go for sort of the detailed analysis of a, we did a sort of meta analysis of looking at the evidence because it's so broad and you're very welcome to have a look. It's a, it's a full literature review in our position statement. So, again, if you have a look at that position statement, there's a whole section of the evidence that I think is summarised quite nicely. So do feel that um, you can have a look and see that. But I think generally 
there's quite good evidence for improvement, but in terms of getting sort of robust um, evidence, it's very hard because each programme is so different. Um, but generally, we have a lot of evidence to show that it's it's beneficial um, in combination, as I was saying earlier, in combination to, I guess, what we call the gold standard, the kind of the, the other elements, the biopsychosocial management approach. I think this is a question a lot of our learners would be interested in. What is the role of the psychiatrist in social prescribing? Such a good question. So I mentioned earlier that social prescribing traditionally, so for kind of the last, I'd say, 10 to 20 years when social prescribing has been sort of starting and getting off the ground, it's been the remit of the GP, really, and the physical mental health, uh, physical health rather than mental health space. Um, it's very, very different in different areas. Ideally, we'd all have a really strong link worker um, uh, presence wherever we're working, be that an inpatient in the community with all ages and with all um, settings of, of mental health care. In some places we have that and there's an NHS commitment, NHS England commitment for that to happen and be rolled out. In some places, that's not the case. As I mentioned, there are other models, but there are also you know, areas where there isn't much going on in terms of third sector organisations and community groups. Um, there is a whole separate uh, question, I suppose, to be discussed if anyone's was interested about you know, the ethics of, of where these groups come from, where they're funded, etc. But essentially, it's very different in different areas. In terms of our role, I think most psychiatrists that I'm aware of aren't aren't aware of what social prescribing is, how it fits into a sustainable healthcare solution and how it can be massively beneficial to our patients. And our patients themselves find it really rewarding and really interesting and, and a really powerful thing to do. I think the first thing for psychiatrists to do is to educate themselves, to be listening to podcasts like this, have a look at articles, have a little Google. Um, there's lots of things available about the benefits of social prescribing, be that nature-based activities, craft-based activities, um, other activities, whatever they may be. The second thing I say is work out what is happening in your local area. So, for example, as you mentioned in your introduction, I'm a CAM psychiatrist working in London. Where I live, there is a really, where I work, there is a really, really robust adult social prescribing um, programme. So it's very easy to refer anybody, either a GP or a psychiatrist or anyone else within the mental health team, can refer to a link worker and that link worker will meet up within a few weeks, usually, I think, with an adult and, and, and do that link worker conversation about social prescribing. Under 18s, there's almost nothing. So there aren't any link workers in just in my specific specific area. It's very different in different areas. There are some areas doing brilliant social prescribing work for under 18s. So I guess for, for someone working in an area like mine, it's about advocating, speaking to commissioners, speaking to link workers, thinking about what can be provided for under 18s and seeing if there is an alternative, if there's a local offer which has a kind of network of these social prescribing activities that we can signpost to. So I think it's about being really aware of that and being aware of the benefits and trying to support the people we're working with to engage with whatever is available in the local area. And I'd also say think social prescribing in team meetings, in you know, if there's a role for um, education, if you're having kind of CPD sessions, would you like to think about that as, a, as part of the, the teaching or the, the continuing professional development work? Because it's a huge area that's relatively cheap in terms of our budgets and um, can be hugely beneficial and such a really positive adjunct to the work that we're doing.
You've mentioned a few avenues where listeners may look for further information on how to access social prescribing. But with that in mind, just to bring that together, what are your top resources that you'd suggest listeners look for on further information on social prescribing for both themselves and patients? Really good question. I'd actually, I'd actually say, like, start with our position statement, because I think that's probably the best place to start. And it'll help you sort of understand the landscape in more detail for different um, subspecialties for psychiatry, for different settings and teams. Um, I'd also say, have a look, have a Google social prescribing and link workers in your local area. I think that's probably the best place to start. See what's available. And if there's nothing available, go back to our position statement and we've set out in there for anyone who's particularly interested in health policy or wants to make some changes have a look because there's a there's a I guess I guess a description of the landscape of how social prescribing sits within current government policy and how to how and where to advocate for um for that as a change if you want to bring that into your local area but there should as I say there's a national commitment for adults to all have access to social prescribing um in the next few years so it is being rolled out and there should be a provision in most areas so it's about identifying it another place to go is local gps so often as i say social prescribing is thought about really well with gps so there might be a link worker literally embedded in the practice or in a local practice but it often the mental health benefits as i say are missed so it's worth speaking to local gp practices and saying do you have social prescribing how do you access it how can we bring this to our patients in mental health and i i'm sure they'd be delighted to hear and be able to signpost you as well so with that in mind, let's sum up everything we've spoken about today. Um, do you have any final words on social prescribing? Yeah, I guess just to see social prescribing as for what it is, which is not a solution on its own, but both in terms of how it can support individuals with their mental health, their recovery, preventing relapse. Um, social prescribing has a role, in my view, in every every potential aspect of somebody's um, recovery journey, be it when they're really quite unwell and inpatient or whether they're preventing relapse or in the sort of mild to moderate um, illnesses. But to see it as part of the part of our toolkit and helping individuals get better, a really powerful tool, but also part of our toolkit in creating a sustainable mental health service that we really can be proud of. I think often it's easy to to think of sustainability as trying to fob people off with something lesser but actually this is part of a solution that sees things as even greater we're not taking anything away here we're adding and we're adding things that can be of huge benefit and if you're building confidence you're building um empowerment in in, in recovery engagement then actually this is part of helping people to engage more um, meaningfully often with other things we're offering such as talking therapies or pharmacology so i just really would like people to, to take away the one thing which is this isn't lesser this is adding more and it can be a really powerful tool okay catherine thank you very much for joining us today this brings us to the end of this podcast if you would like to gain cpd credits for this please complete the short module test associated with this podcast Thank you all for listening to the CPD e-learning podcast. For the latest updates, please follow us on Twitter at rcpsych underscore e-learn. To listen to more podcasts from the CPD e-learning portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online.